I'd like to welcome you to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We are really, really glad that you're here this morning and honored that you would spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. We really, really mean that. Uh, Today we're going to continue to walk through um, the book of Romans. We've been in a sermon series on the book of Romans for six, seven, eight months now or something like that. Last week, uh, we're in chapter 9. Last week, we covered part 1 of chapter 9. This week, we're going to kind of finish off and finish out chapter 9. If you're a guest with us, just to give you an idea of the way we typically do things here, uh, we typically preach through books of the Bible the majority of the time. And we think that's uh, the best way to teach the Bible, to hear from God on a week-to-week basis. And and that's uh, a really, really good thing, we think. But sometimes it becomes a difficult thing. When you run into difficult chapters or difficult passages of Scripture, and last week and today, we have one of those occasions, okay? Uh, the passage that we're dealing with today is, uh, is a difficult one. It's a hard one to uh, wrap our minds around, um, but it's what's next in the book of Romans, and we're going to preach through the whole book, so it's what's next, and uh, we have two options. We could skip it, or we could tackle it head on and really wrestle with it and think about it and allow it to challenge us. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take it head on. Now, here's some options in approaching this text, okay? Now, you could take the first option to say, you know, this is, this is difficult stuff. I don't really like thinking about it. I don't really want to deal with it. And you can shut your mind off for the next 30 or 35 minutes. I encourage you not to do that. I encourage you to take the second approach, which is approaching the scripture by saying, this is God's word. Um, it's difficult. It's, 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 it's hard to wrap my mind around, but I trust that I'm going to learn more about the character and nature of God by digging and wrestling through this. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try that this morning. And so I encourage you to take that second option when uh, facing a passage like this that's difficult to understand. Um, I've had questions about this passage for a long time. I still have questions about how all the little puzzle pieces fit together once we really start thinking about it. Um, but this morning, I really want the Bible to speak for itself. Okay, I want the Bible to speak for itself and just walk through um, the rest of this passage. And uh, we're not coming at this passage from a theological bent or taking something that we believe and trying to fit it into this passage. Uh, we're just going to look at this passage in the broader context of Romans and ask, what is it saying to us? Okay, so let's read. Um, it's Romans 9. Verse 14, we're going to go through the rest of the chapter. There are Bibles scattered throughout the room. If you want to follow along in the Bible, there are also, um, the scripture is going to be on the screens to my left and to my right. I think it's page 550 and 551 in those Bibles scattered throughout if you want to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home. We think everyone should have a Bible in their house. Uh, So take it home. It's our gift to you. Romans 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will, then, you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use 
and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. In the very place where it said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would not have been like, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... Um, you have revealed yourself to us in this book, and that when we open this book, we can trust and believe that these are your words. They're authoritative in our life. Uh, they're without error. Um, they're sufficient in everything that it teaches, and we thank you for that. And I pray as we approach the word this morning um, that we would put ourselves under the word, that we would let the word have authority in our life, um, and I pray that the, the things coming out of my mouth, if they are not of you, I would pray that you would have people forget about them. And I pray that your words would be made clear this morning. And it, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would actually allow this word to change us, to change our hearts, to change the way we worship, to change the way we live, to change the way we love. And we thank you so much for your revealed, uh, you revealing yourself in your word. And we thank you for allowing us to, to get to celebrate you. Um, today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Like I said at the beginning, this is part two. So if you missed last week, it would probably be helpful to go back and listen to part one. We're going to do some review now. But we're not going to be able to review everything we talked about in verses 1 to 13, okay? Um, one of the most important things to remember in talking about Romans 9, it comes in the context of this book of Romans. It is 16 chapters, and we have, we're in chapter 9, right in the middle of it. So we've, we've gone through eight chapters up to this point. Okay, and one of the things I want to call your attention most to is Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, if you know it or remember if you were here, Paul gives us a very clear picture on what the state of humanity is apart from God. Okay, gives us a picture of humanity's need for a savior. The fact that really without God intervening, humanity is helpless. Um, hopeless, helpless. In desperate need of a savior. We have nothing to reconcile us to God, left up to our own devices, okay? So it's important to remember that truth in Romans 1 as we move through the rest of the passage, okay? So in chapter 9, he starts this passage by saying that he is in uh, unceasing anguish and sorrow because of his people, the Jews, have been cut off from God. Okay, Paul's a Jew, he's experienced God's grace, he's experiencing freedom and joy, and he's sad and he's in anguish because his people haven't experienced the same thing he has experienced from a large-scale perspective. For the most part, up to this time, 
in, in Paul writing this, and really in our day and age, the, the Jews have rejected the gospel for the most part. Okay? And he even says he's in so much anguish and loves his people so much that he says that he would be willing to be cut off from God for the sake of his people. Okay, so as we move into through the rest of this chapter, and even uh, in, for sure chapters 10 and 11, just remember that Paul is writing this in a, in a very, uh, has a personal tone here. It's a very pastoral tone. It's in, it's in anguish, and he's thinking about his people as he's writing this letter, even though it has some deep, heady stuff. In verse 6, Paul begins to answer the question, has God's word failed? Because if the, Israel, if the Israelites ha- have rejected the gospel, then that's God's people, then how can the rest of his trust that we've been reconciled to God and that God holds us close and tight and won't let us go if his very people have rejected him? And so that he, Paul's anticipating that question, as Paul always does in Romans, always anticipates the question of his audience. And so really that, this is a big question. How can we really trust all the good news that came out of chapters 1 through 8 of Romans, especially chapter 8 that came before this chapter, how can we really trust that this is going to come true? How can we trust in the promises of God and God's word? Has God's word failed? And so Paul is going to spend the rest of this chapter answering that question with some different illustrations and some different kind of doctrinal truths. Okay? And Paul is going to say that there's nowhere else, nowhere in Scripture that says that all of the Israelites will be saved. It always talks about a remnant of Israel will be saved. There will be some Jews who receive the spiritual promise of salvation, but not all the Jews. Okay, and in verses 7 to 12, he gives the audience, we looked at this last week, two examples from the Old Testament to show, kind of to, 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 to um, defend this idea that God's word has not failed. The first is Abraham, okay? God promised Abraham um, that, that he would have, uh, that his descendants would receive the promise, and Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, both blood of Abraham, but only Isaac's, Isaac and his line received this blessing. Ishmael, even though he was blood of Abraham, did not receive the spiritual blessing. Okay? If you read the Old Testament, everything came from the line of Isaac. And Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah, and Rebekah and Isaac are expecting twins. And God comes to Rebekah and tells her, you're going to have two peoples in your, in your womb, um, the beginning of two peoples, and what will happen is the younger, the secondborn, will, um, will be over the firstborn. The firstborn will serve the younger, he tells Rebekah, before they were even born. Tells her that in, uh, in, Genesis, in Genesis 25. Let's read this real quick. Genesis 25 says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Okay, so you had two boys here, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older. He was born first. And traditionally, the older son got all the blessings, okay? So Jacob would have served Esau. But in a moment of weakness, Esau was hungry. He exchanged his birthright for a bowl of soup. And Jacob gets the birthright now. So it's happened exactly uh, the way God had said it would happen um, through this idea. So Jacob now has the birthright, and Esau is serving the, the, uh, the Esau is serving Jacob, who is the younger brother. And God tells Rebekah that this was what was going to happen um, before they were even born. Okay? Verse 13 in chapter 9 <clears throat> says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay? And we talked a lot about this last week. This word hate, 
um, is probably um, kind of a hate of comparison, similar to the way Jesus used it in Luke 14 when he says, to follow me, you must hate uh, mothers and fathers and wives and husbands and children to follow me. Basically, to the degree that you follow me, in comparison to how much you love me, you should hate your own family, okay? He's not really meaning you should hate your family. That would go against scripture. He's saying in comparison to following me and how much you love me, you should hate your family. And this is probably the same idea of hate here. In comparison to how much he loved Jacob, he hated Esau, okay? That can kind of uh, trip us up a little bit, so I wanted to address that, okay? Now, kind of moving into today, the two big ideas coming from those first 13 chapters are this, I think, that we need to see, that God differentiated between Jacob and Esau before they were born, before any kind of behavior, before they did anything, he said, this, one is go this line, Jacob's line, is going to get the spiritual blessing, and Esau's line is not. Okay, so that's, that's what happened in the Old Testament. So, now Paul anticipating the question here of, has God's word failed? He's answered that question, I should say. And now the second question of the, the, the chapter is really, is God unjust? Is that fair? Is it fair or just for God to do this? Okay, good question. Okay, question many of us have, and Paul knows we would have this question, so that's why he's addressing it here. So Paul's going to go back um, to the Exodus again here, um, to the Old Testament. He's done Genesis, now he's moving through Exodus to quote what God says to Moses and Pharaoh in this narrative, okay? So verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Excl exclamation point there, okay? Then to Moses, okay, to Moses he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, I'm going to read that last verse again, because that's kind of the thesis verse of today. So then it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, then to Pharaoh, they're in, in, intertwined in this, in this uh, narrative. To Pharaoh, he says, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, remember who Pharaoh was, okay? Evil guy, had slaves under him, powerful, at one point wanted to wipe, off, uh, wipe the Jewish race off the face of the earth, so he was killing all the infants so the Jews would be eradicated, okay? Not a good guy, an evil guy, okay? This is who Pharaoh was. But God's saying here that he is going to raise Pharaoh up so he could show his power, so he, could, so he could show who he is, so his name would go forth throughout all the earth, okay? And we remember, we have the plagues, you have the crossing of the Red Sea, and that miracle, you have um, the Red Sea swallowing up um, the army of Pharaoh. All these things were to show who God is and his power. For he says, for this reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, okay? So the next question really is, is, What's this hardening mean? What's this idea of hardening? The first time we see this in this narrative is Exodus 4, when God is telling Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Um, and then as we go throughout the narrative in Exodus, sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Okay? And I think this is a good example of kind of this tension between divine responsibility, divine sovereignty, I should say, and human responsibility. Okay? God leads out and says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. That's said first, but then Pharaoh's a wicked, 
mean, evil ruler. So there is some sense that Pharaoh is hardened already, like, like all of us were before we became followers of Jesus, okay? We weren't good people, okay? We were capable of doing the things Pharaoh was capable of doing, okay? So there's some sense that Pharaoh was hardening himself, but also God was intervening, intervening to harden Pharaoh as well. The Bible says both things, okay? The Bible also says no one seeks after God, okay? In Ephesians, it even says that we're enemies of God before we become Christians, okay? So we could all, I think, put ourselves in the place of Pharaoh as he relates to God here, okay? So is, the, is God just? Is God just, okay? So this brings up a couple of uh, questions and involving some, some big ideas here, okay? Let's talk about God's justice, okay? God's justice, because that's really a heart, a heartbeat of this question. Is God just? The character, who God is, is he just? Okay, God is just. He has to be just. Okay, it's, it's, it's connected to his holiness, it's connected to his righteousness. If God is not just, he is no longer God. It's a part of his character. God must be just. Okay, if he's not just, he is not God. Now, flowing out of that idea of justice, uh, being just, comes all sorts of different actions on God's part. Two of those mainly are judgment and mercy. God doesn't always have to judge. Okay, that, he can do that whenever he wants to. And God doesn't always have to show mercy, okay? Sometimes he can show mercy. Sometimes he doesn't have to show mercy, okay? But he always is just, okay? So let's talk about this idea of mercy, okay? And I think this is, this, this is what really has helped me with this passage, okay? And we got to think back to Romans 1 and what it says humanity apart from God is like, okay? Let's take this illustration, okay? Um, let's just say a, um, a billionaire guy with a lot of money, businessman, um, chooses to, um, chooses a, a, an elementary school, maybe some um, eight-year-olds. You know what? There's this, let's just use this. Michael Scott, office. Remember Scott's Tots? Okay. So, Scott's Tots, okay? So, Michael Scott comes to um, this um, group of third graders, eight-year-old-ish, underprivileged. He says, when you graduate, I'm going to pay for your college education 10 years from now, okay? And we, if those of you know the story, he ends up, he just wants to do something to make himself feel good, and he ends up, he can't, he can't do it in the end. But before they figure out he can't do it and he tells them that, they think he is amazing, right? Like, who wouldn't? Like, they, when he comes in their senior year, they throw a party, they, they, they write a song for him, they're dancing for him, they're seeing him like a godlike figure before he shares the news with them, Right? And let's just take any uh, guy who would, who would do that, to, to take 30 underprivileged kids and pay for their college education. We think, wow, what an amazing person to give his money away that way. We don't say, well, how many other kids like that were out there that could have used that money? Only 30? How many other uh, uh, under-resourced schools and, and kids are out there? Why did you do these 30? and not do these hundreds and thousands of others. No, we, we never say that because we, we really understand mercy. If we really think about it, we understand this, okay? You can say a, a person who gives back to a university. Maybe their alma mater, a university that's made an impact on them, okay? They give a big grant, a couple million dollars to allow them to do something. We don't say, wow, how many other universities could have used that money? I'm, 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 why did he only do it for one? He could have done it for all of them. No, we say, wow, what a generous gift to this university because that university didn't 
in a sense, didn't deserve it. He didn't have to do, do that, but the guy chose to do it. Okay, so this is the idea of mercy, okay? God can show mercy, but he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to show us mercy. And if we go back to Romans 1, we don't deserve mercy as human beings. And this is maybe hard to hear, but this is all throughout the scriptures. We don't deserve mercy. That's why it's called mercy. We don't deserve God's grace. That's why it's called God's grace. If we think we bring something to the table in this situation and say, humans deserve something from God, then you start to have to ask the question, why Jesus? Why did he come to live the life he lived and died the death and rose three days later? And, and, and why grace? If we bring something to the table and we can do something on our own here, then why the need for grace? Why the need for mercy? We have, to, we have to understand that we aren't deserving of anything that God gives us involving grace or mercy. Nothing. Okay? All humanity, okay? All of humanity is deserving of nothing from God. Yet he chooses to show mercy to some. And this is um, amazing in some ways, but difficult to understand how this works. Okay? And once you lay claim to God's mercy, it ceases to be mercy. Like, we, we get that. Like, if you have a claim on God's love, then it's no longer mercy. It's just an exchange because you're, you did something right, therefore God owes you something. Then it's not mercy anymore, okay? We have no claim upon the mercy of God. And this, uh, this whole fairness, is God just? Yes, God is just, but he doesn't have to show mercy to anyone he ha to, to anybody, he can show mercy to whomever he wants to show mercy to. Okay, let's go to verse 19. We're going to enter into another objection here. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So here's the second objection. Why does he still find fault? Or say it, to a, say it another way. If God is sovereign and he's showing mercy to some, then how can he keep those he doesn't show mercy to accountable for their actions, right? So that's the next logical question. That's what Paul is expecting here. That's a good question for us to ask. Now, it's interesting how Paul responds in verse 20 because it seems like this particular objection was kind of uttered in a little bit of an accusatory way, the way Paul answers this. So I think when we, when we think about this and we're wrestling with this, we should, we should take more of an investigative posture. Like, I really want to figure this out than more of an accusatory posture towards God. Because again, this one seems to be uh, lobbed at more of an accusatory, at least the, the person that Paul's thinking about when he's writing this. Because he says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, like we saw in the Exodus, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom, we, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So to sum up Paul's answer here, he basically says that God is the creator, we are the creation, and sometimes the creation doesn't get all the answers. Sometimes the creation doesn't get all the answers to why the creator does what he does. Very straightforward, very simple, I think. And, but throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul's going to continue to, I think, it's very straightforward kind of pushing back answer from Paul there. But he's going to continue to unpack this and show us how kind of these two things fit together. Okay. So the question here really is, 
if, if God could save everyone, why doesn't he? It seems like Paul is saying that uh, the way God to, would get most glory is that he shows his mercy to some, and to others he passes over them, allowing their sin and rebellion to take its natural course. Okay? Now, here's the deal. People who aren't followers of Jesus, and maybe some of you are in here, and we are really, really glad that you're here, but typically, that if you're a, not a follower of Jesus, you don't want anything to do with God. Like, you don't care about God. You're not, you're not pursuing God, that's why you're not a Christian, okay? And so you're doing whatever you're doing, but you're not worshiping God. You're not a Christian, okay? And so it's not as if we sometimes have this mindset that, like, God is, like, locked the door into a relationship with him, and he's not letting people in that are banging on the door to get in, okay? No one bangs on the door to, to, to get into God's relationship unless God moves first. It's what Romans 1 is about, okay? So people who don't want anything to do with God who are in rebellion against God, they're going to continue to do that, okay? And what this passage in a sense saying is God is taking his hands off of them and letting sin and rebellion take its natural course, okay? The natural course after this life is to spend eternity separated from a loving God, what the Bible calls hell, okay? And so it's not as in a sense that God is rejecting people. He's allowing the sin that people are living in apart from God to go their own way, Again, Romans 1 helps us so much ask and answer some of these questions that starts coming up, okay? This is what the hardening is, okay? Hardening, in a sense, is just allowing the people to go the way they're, they're going. Listen to the theologian John Stott here. If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This is an antinomy. It contains a mystery Antinomy, two things seem to be the same, uh, equal at the same time. Contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. Okay? Uh, we'll, we'll get back to that uh, briefly at the end. Um, so here, here's an, another illustration I think that, that's helpful. Uh, Pastor James Kennedy um, shared this illustration, and it's, it's, it's become a popular illustration to kind of address this. But imagine you have four really close friends. And there are five. You got five close friends, he tells them. And, and all of them, they're talking to you about robbing a bank. They're robbing a bank, and you're pleading with them not to do this. This is a bad idea, guys. Do not rob this bank. They don't listen. They're, 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 they're just headed that way. They're, they're almost ignoring you, okay? And they, they're in this apartment. They're about to go across the street to rob this bank. And all you can think of doing is just tackling the last one. You just tackle the last one and hold them down. The other four go. And during the process of the robbery, um, the, a security guard is killed. The four friend, your four friends are captured, and they will spend the rest of their life in prison. Okay? So um, who's responsible for robbing the bank? Who's responsible for the four spending their life in prison? They are. But who's actually responsible for the one who didn't go to prison because he wasn't in the bank when everything went down? Well, it's not him because you tackled him. Okay? You prevented him from going the way that he, that he was planning on going. Okay, that's that's an illustration to kind of to kind of um, give some give, give some uh, picture to what uh, Stott's quote is there. Okay, we'll turn back to a few little things at the end on that, but I want to continue through this uh, the rest of this chapter. So Paul now is going to turn his attention back to the original question of the Jewish uh, the Jews' unbelief. Okay, he uses the writings of the prophet Hosea and Isaiah here to show that the consistent pattern of God throughout all the scripture 
is to allow people to come into his family that really shouldn't be in his family. They don't seem like this makes sense. Like this, this person shouldn't be in God's family, yet the consistent pattern in Scripture is that's exactly who God brings into his family. So let's move through this pretty quick. As indeed he says in Hosea, verse 25, Those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries, cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the, upon the earth fully and without delay. And as, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us, off, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? Verse 30. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay? So, so Paul's really trying to get at this idea that, yes, God is sovereign over salvation, and he has mercy on whomever he's going to have mercy, but there's still human responsibility. There's still human responsibility. And this is the tension that we have to live in, okay? Because he's saying here that the, the Gentiles who had, wanted nothing to do with God, they were pagans according to the Jews, wanted nothing to do with God, they were going their own way, yet they obtained the righteousness of God, okay? Because they, they believed by faith. They weren't trying to pursue it by works. The Gentiles didn't care about the works of the law, okay? But they obtained it because... At this point in the scriptures, the, the mission of the Gentiles has gone out throughout Acts. Many, many Gentiles are coming to faith. This is what Paul is talking about. But then he says Israel. He says they were pursuing righteousness through the law, through moral obedience to the law. Okay? And the reason why they didn't obtain it, because they weren't humble enough to admit that they couldn't receive the righteousness on their own. Okay? But they continued to, to do that, trying to obtain righteousness by the way they lived, by living up to the law. And we would all fail if that's the game we play. If that's the game we want to play, receiving the righteousness of, of Christ and God by, by keeping the law, the only way you win that game is by perfection. Try it, but you have to be perfect. But once you're not perfect, you lose the game because you're trying by works of the law. The only way here is to, to humbly admit that there is nothing I can do to reconcile myself to God. So we fall upon his mercy, fall upon his grace, asking to forgive us. And we trust the gospel and have faith, okay? So there is a human responsibility here. He's saying that Israel had a chance, but they didn't. They didn't respond in a human way. So there is some element of human responsibility here, okay? Um, kind of two things to, to kind of think through this tension here. Um, God is completely sovereign all of, uh, over all of history. I think most of us who are followers of Jesus would, would, would be okay with that. God is completely sovereign over all of history. Um, yet, um, humans are always completely responsible for his or her behavior. Okay? And there's the tension. Okay, the umbrella here is God is sovereign over every aspect of history and over every person in history. Yet, within that sovereignty, there's some responsibility that all of us have. 
in relationship to God, okay? And this is a tension, and it's difficult, but the Bible, from beginning to end, seems to have this tension in it. So we need to be comfortable with this tension if we're going to be people of the Word. Now, I want to address a few problems and then talk about just some implications, and then we'll be done, okay? So, first thing I hear a lot in this is having to do with this. Why do we have to insist on the doctrine of election? It causes so many problems, okay? Again, not a bad question. Yes, election causes difficulties. But the reason for accepting this doctrine is because if you go down this road and start trying to answer these questions, you're going to there's going to be more problems and more difficulties with other explanations. I promise you. Go down this road in the way you think things play out, and you're going to have more difficulties. So once you start asking these questions, Election actually simplifies things a little bit as we try to answer these really, really difficult questions, okay? And here's the deal. If, if you take kind of the, do, the, the, the doctrine of election out of things, you really begin to compromise. Really, the central teaching of the Bible is that we are saved by grace alone and not a result of our works. Because if you take this piece out, then you have to say there's something inside of a human being that caused them to be reconciled to God. Okay, they were smarter, or they, had, they, were, they were in the right place at the right time, they had a greater openness, or they had a greater humility. And, and then you're, you're one step really away from saying, we are the authors of our salvation. So to keep that, we are saved by grace through faith alone, then really, you I think that the doctrine of election becomes the best option for holding that um, central teaching of the Bible, that we are saved by grace alone. Because if you don't go there, you have to say there's something inside of a human being that created salvation. And I just don't think from beginning to end the scriptures teach that. Now, the second um, issue maybe that comes up with this, um, these are not easy questions. This is kind of uh, where I've come to land and the leadership of the church has come to land on this. If you believe in election, doesn't that leave you with the problem of why God doesn't choose to save everyone? Okay, yes, it does. Um, but so do Christians who don't believe in election, okay? Because election doesn't create the problem. It really leads us to actually think about the problem, okay? So why are some people saved and why are some people not saved, okay? All Christians have this problem, I would say. All Christians do because you have to say, okay, if God wants everybody to be saved and he has actually the power to save everyone, which... I think all Christians would say that based off the scriptures. And God could save everyone, but God doesn't save everyone, okay? If, he, if, he, if he's powerful enough and he wants to, why doesn't he save everyone? And that's not just a question and an issue for someone who believes in election. It's actually a question in someone who actually is reading the Bible because that's the tension we see in the scripture. Now, the only way out of this to kind of deny this is to say God will save everyone called universalism. And I don't think, I think you're going to get problems all throughout the scriptures of the, the Bible does not teach universalism. Um, I'm confident of that. And um, most Christians would, would agree with me there. So either whether you believe this or not, what we're talking about, that you're still left with an issue of why could a good God who loves everyone, who's all powerful, who could save everyone, why doesn't he save everyone? And the answer that we put forth today is because it, something in his sovereign will that is unexplainable to us is, is why it's happening. 
And we can trust that he's still loving because of Jesus. We know that he loves us. We know that he's good. We know that he's loving because we see God in who Jesus is. Okay? So just because we don't have our, our, this, the questions all nice, neatly, and wrapped up to this, we can still trust that he's a good God. But there's some things about his will and what he does that we are not going to always have answers to. Okay? Um, there, there's a mystery here, but I don't think abandoning this and running away from this doctrine helps understand the mystery at all. I don't think it does. Um, it may be help you not think about it anymore, but I don't think, since it's in God's word, I think we need to be people who are thinking critically about God's word. Now, what, there, there are many more of those types of things. Those are the more common ones. Um, I would love to sit down and talk through other ones. There's all sorts of things we could talk about there, but I just wanted to give a few more of the common ones because I know there are questions. I know you're wrestling with things right now. Here are the implications, and I think here is some of those why talk about this, okay? Number one, humility. Humility. Um, if there is nothing inside of us that we can bring to the table in salvation, not wisdom, not good choice, I was more open, then this is the bedrock of humility. Like there's no lower you can go to, than humility to say the greatest thing that has ever happened in a follower of Jesus' life was done solely by God. Like how humbling is that? How humbling to say I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And yet you just showed your grace and your mercy to me and your son, and it's awesome, and it's wonderful, and it's amazing. And it causes us to be humble. And it's also why we can stand up here week after week and tell everyone here, and as hopefully as you're living your life, you can tell people anyone can come. doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what you're struggling with. doesn't matter how bad of a person you think you are. Because it is all up to God and not up to us, you can truly say God can, wel God can welcome, God can save anyone because it is up to him and not up to us. Okay, So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I know this has been a really hard text to, to, to wrestle with today, but here's the good news. like It is totally up to God. So if you're here and you think you're not good enough, or you're comparing yourself to other people, or maybe you think Christians have it all together and you don't, stop it. God says, come. Come. Come into my family. Believe. Have faith in who I am and what I've done. All are welcome. doesn't matter how bad of a person you think you are. If it is solely up to God. If it's not up to God, then we start, we have some areas to boast in. I was smarter. I was smarter than this guy. I'm, I'm the one that raised my hand. He didn't. I must, I must get it. He, he's not, he doesn't get it. Okay, again, really quick down the road of boasting. And we know the scriptures say there is no boasting in our salvation. Um, second, so first humility. Second, I think um, this is what my personal really testimony with this. I was swimming in a really, really deep swimming pool of grace. Um, before I begin to think about this. But once I begin to think about how God maybe worked this out and how it was solely by God and nothing that I did, I felt like that I began, began swimming in an ocean of grace. Like the grace and the mercy became so much more amazing because I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. And so I think as we're going to sing a song here in a few minutes, and I, pr I pray that 
through worship through song that you would praise him and you'd be thinking about amazing grace and how how truly it's not just grace or that's pretty good grace because God helped me make this decision. No, like you were lost. You wanted nothing to do with him and he saved you. How sweet the sound, amazing grace, okay? Last two, um, it strengthens our prayer. And this is something that I think this maybe um, viewpoint gets challenged in. Here, here's the way I see this. If God is the sole um, person, that is he's truly the author of the salvation, then I'm going to pray more. Like if, if, if he's the author of salvation, I'm going to beg with him. I'm going to plead with him. I'm going to get on my knees and beg that he would change people's hearts and soul. Now, if, he's, if there's something else involved other than God's grace and mercy and God's kind of waiting on decisions to be made or God's waiting on humans to do something, why pray? Like that doesn't help my prayer if I know that ultimately God's not the decider of this. If, if a human's going to ultimately decide in this, I, sh I probably shouldn't be praying to God here. I should probably be doing something, something else. Okay, so I actually think this idea strengthens our prayer life because he is the only one who can save. Um, and this kind of leads into the fourth point, um, sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel. Now, um, I think this, what this does in our evangelism and our sharing the gospel, um, it really helps us focus and I think have boldness because our only job that begins... It begins to be talking about the good news, talking about who Jesus is and what he has done, and then pray like crazy that people would have their hearts changed. Um, and that takes a lot of pressure off me to manipulate, to convince, to, to cajole. Um, I think it prevents uh, the, uh, the church from, from doing some really silly things to get people to raise their hand and believe. Because if it's ultimately up to God, it's pretty simple. Preach the good news, be clear about it, and pray that people would respond. Because I'm not going to get the glory for him, for people coming to faith. If I try to take that glory, the scripture says it is all God. It is only God who gets the glory for people who believe. So it prevents us and puts some checks in place from doing some really goofy things to get people to make decisions, which I don't think are biblical. Okay, so it really allows us to preach the word and trust that he is going. Now, we, we pray and we, we beg and we love people and we pursue people and we pray for people and we, we want to see people healed. All of those things, we want to see those things happen. And those are things we can do. But talking about salvation, if it is up to God at the end of the day, we talk about Jesus, we talk about who he is, and we ask people to respond to that. And it really takes a lot of the pressure off us that I know all of us kind of feel when, it, when you start talking about sharing our faith and evangelism and all those things. You kind of feel this weight on us. But if it's just about proclaiming the good news and telling our story and how he's changed us and then stepping back and praying that God would move in a person's heart and a person's mind, it changes the way we do evangelism. Um, here's the deal, okay? So um, I want us to, uh, we're going we're gonna to take communion here. Um, and then after we take communion, we're going to sing one more song. And I don't want us to sing um, with, our, with, our, with our minds focused on his amazing grace and mercy. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for, again, your word. I thank you for even hard texts that make us really think and struggle and really try to dig deep in trying to understand um, more about your character and nature. 
Um, we all admit that these things aren't easy for us. I think there's probably a person in this room that thinks some of these things are easy to, to think about and to come to conclusions on. So we just pray humbly that your spirit would help us understand the word, that your spirit would help us respond to your word, because we know even moving here, it's still not up to us solely to go now live this Christian life. It is um, still your spirit who works in us to accomplish your purposes. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We take communion every week here. And one of the reasons why we do it is to um, just remember, to have a tangible reminder when we get to use all of our five senses to experience and to, to just remember his grace and his mercy and what Jesus did on our behalf. Um, and so I'm a forgetful person. I forget the gospel a lot, and I need to be reminded of the gospel. So this is um, arguably the best reminder of the gospel that we have, communion. Okay? And so when... Um, Shortly before Jesus would go to the cross, he took a loaf of bread and he tore it in the midst of his closest followers. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and he said, the liquid in this cup represents my blood shed for you. That would cover past, present, and future sins. And to, to remember it as you're, as you're taking the bread and you're, you're, you're tasting um, the juice, to, to, to remember, to remember what I have done on your behalf and allow that to, 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 um, to uh, produce feelings of joy and freedom and worship inside of you as you remember the gospel. Um, so for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I just encourage you to, to think about his grace. Think about the mercy that you've been shown when you didn't deserve mercy. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and, and again, I, I, think, I, I think God is moving all the time in his spirit. And I think his spirit may be moving in some of you, your hearts and minds right now if you're not a follower of Jesus. And you may be at that point when you want to actually profess faith and say, yeah, I feel like God, God has changed me. Because the word has power. So if you've been changed this morning, you feel like God has done something in your heart and mind, come take communion. It's for followers of Jesus. This may be your first time to take communion. We invite you to do that. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and um, you're still thinking about all this stuff, which there's a lot to think about, I know, um, and you're just kind of not ready and you feel like the, maybe the Lord's, you're not hearing anything from the Lord, then that's okay. We invite you to stay where you're seated. Communion is something for Christians only. Um, but if that is you, I would love to have a conversation with you. Um, this, this stuff is much easier to talk about over some good food or a good drink and just to have a, a just discussion about it. So if that's you and you're struggling with it, please come and talk to me. I would love to sit down and share with you my, some of my story as well. Um, so take a few minutes, and whenever you're ready, come forward. There's two stations up front, one in the back. And if you're, if you're new here with us, uh, we'll, uh, our servers will tear off a piece of bread and hand it to you, and then you'll dip it in um, the juice and then you can eat it after you dip it in the juice. So take a few minutes and come forward whenever you're ready.